Russell T here, Russell the Davis. Russell the Davis, Russell the Davis, Russell the Russell the Davis. Russell the Davis, Russell the Davis, Russell the Russell the Russell the Davis. Years and years and years, yeah. It's Rusty's brand new show, it's Icky though. Clear away those fears, yeah. It's Rusty Davis, count the minds down, bro. Years and years and years, yeah. Let's watch a brand new show, his chip not blow. Clear away those fears, yeah. Who cares about years and years? Episode 5, 2028. Okay, so five episodes in now. Christmas 2027 to Christmas 2028. And this week we have one more Englishman and one more Australian man. So we're completely evened out. What did everyone think of the new episode? I felt this one was... Plot-wise, it was leaner than the previous episodes. I think it was very um, stripped back this week to focus on, um, I'd say, maybe the main story of Stephen and these concentration camps starting to happen with that other thread of Edith discovering what's going on there. There wasn't quite as many narrative fireworks, I felt. Lena and Mina giving Stephen to Victor in this episode. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Cats, what did you think? Uh, I, I thought it was really good. I, I like that they're sort of leaning in on the thriller aspect of it uh, I'm, I'm kind of surprised I was expecting it to be a more typical RTD style drama but instead of uh, you know there was that like that scene uh, in the filing cabinet room uh, the action's really amping up uh, which makes me excited for the next episode I liked all those thriller sections had really nice Murray Gold music it was remind, reminding me of Miracle Day and those kind of things where you had the little boop boops music when someone's on a computer investigating whatever but yeah, Morph, what did you think of episode five? Uh, yeah, I also really enjoyed it. I thought it was, um, it definitely made a change from the, you know, it's normally tense and dramatic, but this one was kind of somber and it had a tone to it that kind of was fitting of Danny's death and it was leading, obviously, into whatever's happening in episode six. I thought it was interesting how it started. Katz, you'll probably have thought this too with the arresting press. That was... Normally these episodes are timely to Britain, but this felt very timely to us, don't you think? Press getting raided, arrested. With that AFP raid. Yeah. Yeah, I, I thought they were a podcaster at first. I was going to make some uh, <laughs> but I know they're a radio show. Uh, there's a thing in the background, some logo. Did you guys catch that the guy they arrested, when the cops kind of came in to drag him away, I only caught this on the rewatch by I'm looking at the subtitles, but they actually said, um, I'm arresting you for the possession of indecent images of children. Oh, that's literally why, yeah, that's that's the kind of the charge that they're bringing the guy in on. I'm just, <laughs> it's an interesting detail RTD just kind of slipped in there. Yeah, that recontextualizes my reading of the scene. Do you think it was a real charge? That's the question, isn't it? I think it's the ambiguity. Like, sure, I mean, he could well be, you know, a pedo who they've been dragging on entirely legitimate premises, or it could be that, you know, this has all been slightly cooked up because they're going to, they, they just want to suppress the whole disappeared thing. We have so little information that I don't feel like trying to work out if he is or not because it feels like just judging the actor's appearance. <laughs> I thought the indecent images thing was very, um, uh, Mycroft of Viv. As in Mycroft of Sherlock? It, yeah, exactly. I can't comment. Well, let's remember, Nia hasn't watched Sherlock, so we're still on lockdown there. He'll do it eventually. I sh I'm sure he will. 
And if he doesn't, you know, he'll be joining Dilbert. <laughs> Speaking of someone standing alone, Vivian was all about the UK being magnificent and standing alone. When in the in the montage intercutting with the guy getting arrested, when she was saying, I promise you freedom and the ability to enjoy that freedom and all that non-specific kind of stuff. What did you think of her speech? That speech gave me very much, um, it was a bit of that no deal Brexit thing. It's that sort of rhetoric of how, you know, even though we're on our own and everyone has abandoned us and UNIT has been shut down because international partners have withdrawn and all of that, you know, shit, we'll still be fine. You know, British spirit will carry us through. So it's, yeah, it's very on point. You know, it's laser accurate to the present day. And I thought the speech itself was very funny in its wording. I'm gonna, um, we're gonna enable ourselves to enable ourselves or whatever the hell it was she was saying. And, and, and you know, intercutting that with um, the radio guy just criticizing her speech was, it was, it was on the nose, but it was very funny. She reminded me of that, uh, there's a video circulating around Twitter a few days ago of that Change UK MP. Uh, I forget what yes! She, I forget what she was exactly saying. She was saying something like, look, look in your hands and the powers in your hands. It was just mm-hmm. like absolute nonsense. Uh, yeah, that, that was that was uh, Joan Ryan. Yeah, she got everyone to look at, put your hands in front of you. Look at your hands. That's where the future is. It's in your hands. Which is very funny. I mean, you know, I'm imagining in the case of Joan Ryan, her hands is probably um, covered with the blood of Palestinian children, but let's not go there. What are they calling themselves now? Um, they're, I think they're going to be the independent group for change now because they can't be Change UK anymore because they got legal action from change.org. <laughs> yeah, after, um, yeah, they're all quite, that's yeah, a very funny story there. So they're on like their fifth different name now or something. Well, it's very holistic. They're embodying the spirit of change in, you know, that ever slippery name. And ever, sli- ever slippery, uh, polling. <laughs> um... I can't think of a natural segue for this, but what did you think of Lee and Lincoln, so Rosie's kids, both played by new actors? Did you think it was distracting or kind of believable in how, at that age, kids' growth spurred up and they look pretty different? Lincoln's I didn't really notice, but Lee's Lee had a growth spurt, clearly, so I, I noticed him. It was kind of the other way around. Lee's, uh, I think he looked very naturally like an older version of the earlier actor. Yeah. Uh, Lincoln, I thought, looked um, heaps different. I mean, obviously different build and posture and height and everything, but the face, I think, looked a bit different too. But anyway, uh, I really liked the new Lee. I liked when he was bagging out his mum about how she shouldn't have ratted on him for doing whatever he was in the streets and that she shouldn't blame their zone being criminal zoned on him because it was her calling the cops, you know, which would have led to stats that eventually got assessed as such. He was just the one doing the crimes. I was going to say, I'm not sure that you will agree, but um, I think this is the sort of the sort of series that... You do kind of need, you know, nine, ten episodes for to really flesh out all of these things. I would really love to see Lee involved in criminal activity. I'd love to see Lincoln grow up fully into, you know, and we might, we might, but there's only one episode left and there's a lot to do. So I feel like they, they, they could, there should have been a bit more time to really go into all of, all of these things, you know? Well, Lee was starting to look like the kid from This Is England. So if you want more episodes on someone who looks like that, there's plenty for you. Just go watch This Is England. Yeah. Although um, with that, I feel it's not just um, Lee and Lincoln. Also, there's Ruby as well. Like that generation of the kids has kind of been um, put to the side for most of the story. And I, I'm a bit conflicted about the whole should have had more episodes thing. I think... It's very lean, it's very tight, it's very uh, concise, and that can be a good thing. Like, 
it, might, it would have been quite interesting to see Lee getting involved in criminality and stuff, but at the same time, the show is quite clear and sort of deliberate with its choices of focus, and I'm not really inclined to kind of go after the show for it just yet. Like, we'll see after episode six, I think, whether they kind of made the right choices there. I know the irony of saying this as Doctor Who, uh, as Doctor Who watches, but I always think, yeah, less is more. You should leave a series wishing there were more episodes than kind of petering out of it or thinking some bits were yeah. repetitive or whatever. Would you be in a criminal zone, do you reckon, anyone, if you were in 2028? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, our house has been burgled, so probably. Uh, I live in a very bourgeois area, so I don't think so. Yeah, it was very much a class-based thing, wasn't it? Like, we got that detail of Viv is doing it to the estates. So the, these uh, these estates are basically becoming, like, criminal areas based on, pretty much based on class. I don't think it was explicitly mentioned in our... The story but it was in the synopsis that the police have been privatized uh oh what yeah I, I i swear it said in the episode five synopsis the one that uh was released early and had quite a few spoilers in it that the police were now privatized but it didn't say that in the episode no, release the davies cut we need to see this stuff <laughs> do we need a novelization do <laughs> is, is this the the limbo instead of getting more episodes we need the scripts novelized so we can see this kind of stuff because that sounds really interesting Privatized. a novelization of this would be great like this is this is ripe for a novelization that kick ass and rtd was so good at it too when he novelized rose that was a really excellent transformation but uh, he'll never do this he's he's pushing forward he's got the boys next year uh, speaking of um i guess class settings getting worse i was surprised how victor's kind of prison limbo pre-deportation thing looked pretty fine almost like fairly comfortable like i'm sure it's not that pleasant to live in but like there were couches the room seemed fairly big-ish what did you think of that setting where steven visited him it reminded me of the sixth form common room at my old school with <laughs> just the chairs and the, the, the swimming carpet i think it's a bit of a pretense isn't it I, I i think it was it was meant to show how visitors can come in and see that you know it's fine we, we get a party we can even have a couple of drinks over the new year's oh, I see. yeah and then eventually you know that they go into these concentration camps which you know they can be concentration camps of oranges it's still be called a concentration camp and then yeah. it can get worse even in that place itself the dormers might be really cramped and terrible but the visiting waiting room might be comfy for pretense like you say yeah i can see that that's very um government-ish well speaking of victor i've got a um i won't be like in giga was a few weeks ago and crow very happy with myself but Unfortunately, I was more on point than I wished to be last week when I said I think the lines aren't going to be too happy with them with Victor when I opened the door to Danny's place. They didn't, they weren't physically, well, Rosie did hit him actually, but she hugged him afterwards. And then Stephen says the sisters seem to be the one most concerned with his welfare, you know, after the fact. So Rosie's fine. I've forgiven her, but wow, Stephen's utter hatred of Victor is alarming really, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, I must admit I ate a dick on that one. Like, the family were definitely more um, hostile towards Victor than I expected, and especially Stephen. Obviously, Edith's the big, you know, activist, you know, woman, and she, she has kind of that compassion. She visited Victor two weeks ago. But, like, you know, oh, my God. Stephen, what, what? he's so... He's just... I couldn't believe it when he was just telling Victor that it's all your fault, you know? And it's like, what? Didn't we have this whole thing about how it's not Victor's fault? They were torturing him, and it's like, holy shit, how did Stephen get to this place? 
I, I can believe it. I think it makes a lot of sense in retrospect. You just have to look at the character's name and think of why Russell might be so resentful of him. <laughs> oh, God. When, when Stephen was saying, I was so bored to Victor about all of Victor's troubles over the years, that was the thing I was really verged at Rosie for saying in early episodes, like when she hung up, when Danny called her on the fridge about what's the issue was with Victor now. It's such a infuriating attitude to have that, you know, these... I mean, Stephen's obviously not well off in life. You don't know all the jobs he's working. He's not in great straits. But even so, like, just the sheer attitude and disdain for those even worse off. It's really alarming. I, I dislike it a lot, and it's all too believable. Well, he's always a banker at heart. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, even more humiliating was Ralph, the guy partially responsible for Victor's troubles in the first place, being at the ash scattering instead of Victor. That's just, oh, really rubbing his face in the dirt. I can't help but think that Ralph probably isn't even cognizant of the role he played in Danny's death. Like, he, I, I, I absolutely believe he has not made that mental link at all. We saw how dense he was in the first episode. I bet he thinks that, yeah, yeah, well, I did my duty, you know, I snitched on him to the, I mean, feds or whatever. Like, it's fine, you know, who cares? It's not my fault. It was interesting how long it took the ash scattering to happen because of how many days of rain was it? Like, 60, 70? 80. 80 days. What's a, what is, like, the regular amount of consecutive rain days you get over there uh, in the uk uh i mean i wouldn't have said any more than 10 but that's a complete guess you'd have to google it it's interesting it, it looks pretty rough I, i've been in a um big flood before but it, the consistency of endless rain sounds you know even worse in some days just thinking of all the infrastructure it would disrupt and like they were saying sewage covering up houses and coastal erosion leading to more homeless it's like um what David, our last podcast, was saying about climate refugees. It's very easy to see the specific ways these sorts of things will come about. You know, so much displacement just born of environmental issues, born of climate change in its specific forms, like this endless rain. I just did a quick Google, and um, apparently, like, there's been 89 days of rain in a row in Scotland once, and there was 82 in um, Wales in about 2016. So it's not unheard of, but it's certainly something that's uncommon for the vast majority of the country to get, like, 80 days of rain in a row. And, you know, and obviously the, the huge flooding and stuff, that's clearly a climate change thing. This was, um, Big Finish did this in Torchwood Gods Among Us Part 1, I think. I haven't listened to it yet, but I remember one of the synopses was about endless rain and how to torture a deal with it so it's very much a uh no i really can't link that but i mean it's yeah, a thematic yeah. link because this show is basically turning into torchwood isn't it oh very true very true. yeah you don't have to cut this from the edit now because i've linked it back to the show <laughs> well now that you've got my uh equivalents there back in business i was thinking when those schoolgirls were talking about how they have to use paper again now how happy david brent would be Wernham Hogg, back in blustering business now with paper fueling back up. He doesn't have to be made redundant anymore. Does Woody vaguely remind you of David Brent? Just some of the some of the stupid shit he says. Oh, um, Stephen's friend, the oily guy. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, I can I can cut. He's way too dominant and like successful, but <laughs> the attitude I can definitely see. Ricky Gervais. The stupid jokes David and Brent. laughing at himself reminded yeah. me of Ricky. <laughs> I can definitely say that now. That's quite funny. He reminded me of sort of Alan Sugar mixed with uh, Eric Trump. <laughs> that's 
<laughs> it's an interesting amalgam amalgamation of different people. I really liked the not personally the character, but such a great figure, is such a good foil for Stephen as well. I loved that tying back to, I think episode one when Stephen and Danny were like the soul men recognizing reality and objectivity in the world, and they, you know, they basically were. Um, and that having to be brought back, Stephen brought to heal by having to say maybe Hongchul didn't happen. This whole reality cognition stuff, I thought that was really a good way to bring it back. And it's just horrifying to see these people deny things that we saw happen, we know for a fact happened. And he might even, the oily David Brent dude might, you know, full well know happens, but it's not in his interest to, it's not in his business to. It's just disgusting. I thought it was interesting how they linked that idea of, um, you know, just unshaken belief and willingness to accept conspiracy theories with this hierarchy of obedience. Like, in order for Stephen to you know, join the group, he has to show he's sort of his, his willingness to just be a lackey and just, you know, just be overruled by showing that his consent to this, you know, absurd conspiracy theory. It's, that was quite an interesting link there, I think, that was made. What did we think about um, Viv and Stephen's meeting? I thought Emma Thompson played that beautifully. I loved seeing the difference between the private Viv and the public Viv. Yeah, she seemed very vulnerable. Thompson is incredible. I liked the tone. It felt kind of mythic to me, this figure that we've only seen. I mean, Rosie did meet up, but it wasn't the same. You know, it was at a public press event where this was such an actual meeting between these two significant characters. I loved the conversation and... I had to think of Dilb when she said, they'll kill me, and we didn't know quite who. <laughs> I was thinking back to some of Dilb's less uh, politically correct statements he made in the second podcast about globalists. Did we think it was that type of people? Did we think it was the people themselves? That was my first instinct that she meant the actual population of Britain would rise up against her if so-and-so happens, but that doesn't sound quite right to me. I thought so initially, you know, when she says, they'd kill me, and then Stephen kind of looks at her funny, and, and then she says, they would have me killed. And that line is, that's not the same thing, is it? Yeah, there's a difference between, there's a difference between killing someone and having someone killed. Like, the latter impl implies you can, you can put it into action somehow, you can have someone else do it for you. And that very, that gave me very strong vibes of there's a, sort of the three families, the committee, the, the Illuminati. Committee. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was, it was that sort of thing. You know, certainly with Miracle Day, we had that idea of like a huge shadowy conspiracy. I mean, you know, elsewhere in RTD, you've got you know, the Naismiths in the end of time. You know, he's very, he's got, he's like this thing of like these, this kind of this cabal of rich people controlling everything and certainly we might not ever see who is actually pulling their strings but you know they're there i think i couldn't really tell whether it was whether it was some actual uh sort of world order like that controlling her or whether it was just her succumbing to that paranoia that all authoritarian leaders seem to get that uh there's people you know within the government uh, that, that are going to usurp them so they need to hold their power no matter what I think Morph will disagree with me here, but I don't like this approach where there's like an overseeing entity even more powerful than the author authoritarian figure that are pulling the strings or going to punish them if they do what and what. I feel like it just kind of removes a lot of the culpability and uh, like so much has been built around Vivian's character and her uh, specific views or lack of them and ways of handling public relations and that kind of thing pulling it back and having a in some kind of servitude or at least cahoots with a vague mysterious entity it's like like in giga you know the alan moore thing about why conspiracy theories and that kind of stuff are uncreative and not realistic 
because yeah. it's, just, it's it makes things too simple and too narrowed. I think in this case, I think entities like well forces like that that kind of sense of a shadowy presence i think it's kind of filling in as a substitute for what in reality is more of the system you know the systemic problem you know like certainly there are there isn't there might not necessarily be specific people who are going to like you know assassinate you if you do this and that but certainly there are ways in which deviation from the system leads to you know consequences punishment because we've got a system i mean i'm I'm avoiding the c word here but we've got a system that enforces itself in all kinds of insidious and brutal ways and it's and i think a lot of fiction struggles to manifest that and instead uses this stand-in for it which is this idea of the impossibly powerful figures i don't know the the secret council the the i don't know whoever you want to talk about but it's i think it's playing a, a substitute role morph what do you think I find it really interesting that there might be a power, a power above Viv, and I don't think um, having someone pulling the strings will necessarily mean that Viv doesn't agree with what she's doing. I think it just means that there's somebody above her who, not even necessarily tells her what to do, but who, who has complete control. There's people who government policies don't affect other than, yeah. I mean, on a basic level, you know, people like Viv in real life, there's always, there's always billionaire money behind them. You know, they usually aren't, you know, the, the sole source of all, all their, you know, funding and stuff. Like, there's always, there's always like a network of stuff and people who's, who's interested in to enforce, to advance this, you know, this fascistic, nationalistic, right-wing agenda. Exactly, that's what I'm trying to get at. So you're saying the systems are the problem, not just the way people <laughs> yeah. use and exploit them. Speaking about systems being the problem, I mean, I don't know if we're saving this for later, but that seems to dovetail quite neatly into Viv's speech about the erstwhile sites that she gives to the people, because there was a detail in that speech that I thought was very, very important, which is that she says these problems of refugees and overflow and people needing to be housed will go on forever. She made the point that these problems will never be solved. There will never be a solution. They're going to keep coming. We're going to keep having this flow of people. So, you know, our only solution is to put them in, you know, concentration camps and leave them to die. And I think that sense of fatalism and this refusal to even address actually the idea of solving the problem is linked to this idea of preserving the system and saying, well, the system's not the problem. Do you see what do you see what I'm saying there? It's kind of making excuses for the system and redirecting our attention to, you know, in unimaginable cruelty instead of trying to fix the system. That thing she said about concentration camps, uh, it sort of really, uh, it really reminded me of a lot of things you see on the internet today. You know, uh, people saying like, uh, well, yeah, it's okay to call illegal immigrants illegals because that's what they are really. They're illegal, or they're sort of playing around with around with words that are. Uh, certain right-wing individuals like to like uh, just today uh, again on Twitter I keep making references that things have happened on Twitter uh, but there was some you know political pundit going on about how going on about skull sizes and then they justified themselves by saying oh it's not it's not phrenology it's just craniometry and you know they'd like to play with uh, technicalities like 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 what Viv is doing you know she was trying to sort of take away all the connotations that con- concentration camp yeah. has. It's, I, like, I mean, I hate I hate to be the person that brings up Orwell in these kind of conversations, but this is unironically Orwell because this just isn't vague totalitarian state. It's like 1984 stuff. This is specifically 
politics and the English language, the idea of certain terms being used or absorbed into the psyche can completely affect how someone thinks of a certain thing. The like psychological power of language, absolutely. You, using different terms has an, an immense effect for sure. The bit I adored about that whole exchange was how was how well she normalised the idea of it to you know, her audience and how and how cosy RTD makes it feel. Like when she jokes about having a concentration of oranges, it sounds quite tasty, and everyone has a little giggle. Or even better, I loved when she quoted Victoria Wood about the, the tendency of the British people to be you know, complacent, and everyone just has another chuckle. I love how. RTD is bringing all these elements are very familiar. I don't know if you guys know, but Victoria's words is very kind of um, big. Kind of, she's passed away now, but she was a very big uh, comedic writer in the British culture. And um, the way RTD brings all those things into making this idea of like horrifying uh, cruelty and slaughter just seem incredibly mundane, and just revealing so clearly how it's something that you know your average person can just have a giggle and just completely get used to. I thought that was brilliant. There's something so warming about Viv. I, I love Emma Thompson. I think she does it fantastically. I love her voice. I love the, the way she, even just the, the subtle movements. I don't know if any of you were, were you know, paying attention to the to the movement she made, but in um, in that scene with the concentration. <laughs> and the word concentration simply means a concentration of anything. You could fill a camp full of oranges. It'd be a concentration camp by dint of the oranges being concentrated. Simple as that one made it sound rather tasty. <laughs> in that scene with the concentration camps uh, point, she sort of did this this hand wave, this, this you know, she, when she said, um, oh, I've said enough. And it's it's kind of, it's just, it's motherly. It's like something, it's, it's just so typical of just a kind middle-aged woman. And it, that she really gives that impression. I've said enough. When she when she talks, and when you listen to what she says, it's so clearly the very opposite. It's funny you say that, Morph, because she absolutely specifically reminded me of another warm and motherly figure in what she was saying about concentration camps, and that is, have any of you seen that BBC news video on Jacob Rees's Mogg's comments on the Boa camps? Uh, yeah, I think I saw that a while ago. Yeah, it was like February, wasn't it? Yeah, <laughs> they're not. Um, a good thing, but where else were people going to live Did when there was all that war? Did you justify the use of concentration camps? No, I didn't. I'm talking about <laughs> the, Boer, the Boer War. You're confusing concentration camps with Hitler's extermination camp. These were people who were interned for their safety. Death rates 100 years ago were considerably higher than they are now uh, for all sorts it of reasons, including... It was systematic murder. It was not systematic murder. That's simply wrong. You've got to understand the history of what was going on, not just look at it from the comfort of 2019 uh, and say that uh, this is the same as what was going on with Hitler. It is completely and utterly different, simply wrong. To and yeah, it's it's such an actual thing RTD is writing Viv do here. This, this, the use of terminology and that kind of attitude to minimize the what is actually being talked about and it's 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 completely horrifying it reminds me so much of that scene in Torchwood Children of Earth where the cabinet gets down to brass tacks and discusses which children they're going to offer up to the four five six aliens and you know it, it it goes right into classism and all these other horrifying things I truly don't think there's a better actor in this series than Emma Thompson just based on that scene alone and you know some of the other stuff she's done over the course of the series but you know, maybe maybe followed by Tania Miller. I think she's truly excellent. I think um, just her face when she's explaining, this is what we have to do. It's it's so sort of soppy and sad, but 
stern and she's she's really got a way of putting herself forward as exactly what Viv Rook should have been, exactly the personality politics that gets people into such high places. I mean, Viv is more charismatic and compelling a Prime Minister than any of the last several we've actually had in real life. Yeah, that goes for over here as well. I think that's sort of indicative. I think that's sort of indicative of her links to Boris Johnson as well, I have to say. Before we get to helping on Boris uh, mania with all the shit that's going on with the Tory leadership contest, I have to just stress that thing about the Boer War concentration camps again, because um, obviously that's the one that Rees Mogg was talking about in that Question Time clip, and I thought that scene, when Viv brings it up and just uses the example of how concentration camps are just so... Uh, ingrained in British history and this this is a piece of British history that is not taught you know in schools this is not something that people particularly like know or care about or remember with obviously Rees Mogg being a perfect example of how the memory of them is just apologized for and excused and erased and I thought RTD illustrating how the UK um, goes back towards concentration camps by invoking that history that maybe a lot of you as may, may just not know about and in some senses it's almost taboo to talk about in a public uh, capacity in British media to just openly acknowledge you know our own atrocities because there is so much jingoism and so much apologia and uh, kind of historical amnesia going on in our culture with this stuff I thought it was it was borderline <laughs> radical and quite confrontational for RTD to just foreground that so much on primetime BBC. I absolutely adored that. I think that was just, it was literally, it's almost enough to make me forgive the horseshoe theory shit from last week. <laughs> literally, I loved this so much because it makes it feel, it just reminded me that actually RTD, he's not some milk toast hand wringer. He's got principles. He's not, he's not some, you know, uh, gibbering establishment sympathizer, right? He is completely capable of expressing political anger and political purpose. I just fucking love that. I can't effuse about this enough. It's, it's it's such a sharp contrast to how a certain other show has treated Winston Churchill in the past. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, the the treatment of concentration camps I found interesting. Cats, uh, I don't know if you agree, but I I find that Australia's like none of these positioning strategies need to be used at all. People just completely accept them. I guess because the people in them that have have been othered so much. But I never hear I never hear you know PR strategies to really justify ours, you know, to anything like that degree. Oh, yeah, people totally. just accept they, it. Yeah, they, they don't need to. People just go on about their daily lives knowing that that kind of stuff's happening. But it's happening to brown people and it's happening overseas, so it doesn't matter. And, and overseas is, you know, it's, it's, it's barely away. You know, it's right there. I mean, you could very much make the argument that it's in this case in years and years, like the fact that it's, it's you know, it's only going to be possibly contentious and possibly a problem because it's them, it's the, the populist British people and of course, you know, white people and such and, you know, people who are like us going in the camps rather than people, you know, over there going in the camps, which people wouldn't give a shit about. Labour camps. That's what they called them last time. What do you mean? Yeah, I liked when they had that um, that copy-pasted scene from Turn Left in the episode with um, uh, people being rehoused and having to share houses and stuff. We've the whole of southern England flooded with radiation. Seven million people in need of relocation. And now France has closed its borders. It's a big house. Room for all. Welcome. In you come. I thought this was our house. Yes. Many people's house. It's wonderful. <laughs> and, um... The rise of the Cybermen as well, the kind of collecting the homeless which are disappearing and the spooky rumours about where the homeless are going as well. 
People disappearing off the streets. It's been going on for months. It's them. They're taking you away. Take them away. And even this one's more of a stretch, but the disappeared even reminded me of Hell Bent in that Edith knows they're real because of the memory hole about them online, in that she searches for them and there's nothing there and what isn't there kind of provides a shape of what to look for because it's so distinct in what's been removed, which is how the 12th Doctor kind of remembers Clara in the end, if you remember. Uh, I was so disappointed that the erstwhile camps weren't called the formerly camps. <laughs> oh right, yeah, the whole disappeared thing. The disappeared, it sounds like it could be like the title of a tortured audio or something. I thought that whole plot line, like I was convinced it was going to go in a more overtly sci-fi direction because giving it a title like that, The Disappeared, it makes it feel very mythic and almost in that kind of sort of Pizzagate realm of kind of these incredibly kind of dark and crazy stuff happening. With the blackouts, I thought we were going to find out maybe the blackouts across Britain were whenever they're using all that power to run the gigantic people mincing machine or something, something not quite that, but something in that vein of like, oh my god, I didn't expect this. Like some crazy twist of what they might be doing with the disappeared people. But no, no, it was actually something quite very grounded and very mundane. It was just, you know, these concentration camps. And, um, and also this something vaguely reminded me of when Margaret Atwood wrote The Handmaid's Tale, she made a point of only including stuff that had actually been done in history somewhere, but at some point in sort of time. And that feels almost like a bit like what RTG is doing here. Rather than making up some absurd thing for the government to do, he just keeps it very grounded in stuff that Britain has done before, basically. Well, I think that's great. The blackout specifically, that was in 2017, Ukraine kept having um, cyber attacks from blackouts. I remember there being all write-ups about it back two years ago. I also liked with the blackouts how they were kind of timed comedically to the music in the montage. And the blackouts continue. Oh. Blackouts are cyber attacks. Could be Russia, could be ISIS, could be teenagers in a bedroom. The blackouts were really interesting because in that scene uh, with Viv and Stephen, uh, Stephen's like, oh, oh yeah, those Russian blackouts, and then she's like, oh, don't be daft. And I suppose yes. you, could you, could, you could take that two ways. Uh, one, uh, the blackouts are just uh, like some kind of a government inefficiency and their power systems aren't coping with the floods or whatever, and they blame the Russians. Uh, or alternatively, uh, and, and this, I suppose, is a more interesting idea, albeit less likely. Uh, it's Viv's way of sort of implementing the blink, uh, just oh. randomly caught. Oh, shit, I forgot about that. Wow, interesting. Really uh, tiny detail, but did anybody else notice the billboard um, above Woody's car? Uh, yeah. That said, um, Viv says preserve energy, but it was it was an electrical billboard. Huh. Yeah, that's cool. I, I liked those billboards. I remember when I lived in Korea, there'd be so many billboards of like certain people's faces, you know, flashing and changing electronically from like different ads, like kind of like rotating posters. I really like that. Is that a, are they used regularly in? London or whatever. I don't live in a city, so these might be normal elsewhere. Not necessarily the, the electronic ones, but you do normally see billboards of people who are already in power. Uh, like um, Sadiq Khan might have gone um, 
billboards of, of things that he said that, about, about what he's going to do to London next year or whatever. You get mechanical ones that sort of on like the, those um, slacks that kind of rotate rather than I, I, don't, I wouldn't say the sort of electronic ones are that common, but they're, they're around. Yeah, you get stuff like that occasionally. Something, I don't know if any of you have worked or currently work in customer <laughs> service, but um, I, I used to work retail and I was reminded very much of those experiences when that girl Rosie was talking with about, you know, the legality concerning a food truck or whatever was actually like right there a few metres away from her, but had a curtain in front of her and was displaying across a screen to her just to kind of mitigate how you know, angry people get when they're dealing with people in those roles. Yeah, that was quite funny. <laughs> just just, uh, just the, the, the irony of just being in the next room and just talking through a screen. That felt a bit like, oh, technology. But I do see how it has like that very much just that sensible and kind of logical real world application, honestly. Yeah, exactly. I see, I see that the idea is, oh, technology's bad and we're, we're, we're removing um, human face-to-face contact and whatever. But sometimes I think, especially in jobs like that, where you're over a counter dealing with somebody's life and somebody's, um, yeah. uh, how they, you know, they're, they're, they're how they earn their money, they're living. Um, people, people can get really particularly angry at anything, any kind yeah. of customer service. So sometimes that is necessary. People are the de- the dehumanisation has already happened, and how loathsome people get to like the customer service person in that situation. So I think it's a complete fair Hail Mary to have them behind a little screen even if they're right there for their own sake. I completely empathised with that lady. Do you think if the show were to take us into a KFC or a McDonald's it would all be the um, the self-service t- uh, kiosks? Oh yeah, yeah for sure. I mean it's already almost that, like yeah. we're getting there. Speaking of technology, should we talk about Bethany's um, Kininaru operation? Her whole thing getting their stuff implanted into her. I loved when she did the wave with the fingers to cause the blackout. I loved how she looked like a magician casting a spell. I really liked the, like, the body movement of that. I thought it was really cool. I like when she drew the tick on the screen. Bethany working with Edith, I found really particularly interesting. Willingly working with Edith. Yeah, Bethany's becoming quite the um, quite the superhero figure of the show, isn't she? Like, she's got all the cool hacker powers and she's helping Edith kind of with her heroic quests and stuff. And Bethany very much seems to be on the rise in terms of the series. She's very happy with her technology and how that's all going. And she's got, she's exerting more and more control and ability to access stuff. Like, she's kind of becoming almost the, the a central figure. I like how she's kind of a personal nanny state unto herself with how she can track all her family in much the same way the government tracks you know its citizens the way she glared at Stephen at the end of that episode was terrifying <laughs> you know that she's going to be his downfall absolutely she's going to send so much spam to his inbox <laughs> I, it was interesting how her uh, I'm going to pull a dill here she's kind of draws joy from globalism or global interconnectivity maybe with how she was mm. going through all that data from different countries and loving the interconnectivity of it whereas Stephen's you know so annoyed about uh, he, well he feels she's indebted to the government and he's I think he's just mad in general that she is happy and he is not and she's so exuberantly happy when she gets that those surgeries done on her uh yeah, a really interesting contrast between the daughter and the father there. I thought it was interesting that she derived joy from watching the slow progress of the world's destruction by climate change. <laughs> but in generally, um, between that um, between that sequence and Muriel's uh, eye uh, macular degeneration being cured, I felt this episode was quite... It was more on the technology good 
front than the technology bad front. I liked Gran just spending the money on her own eyes. I'm, I'm sure some people will kick up a fuss and say, oh, you, you know, you're the older grandparent. It's your job to leave, blah, blah, blah. But she already lets them live in a house. She's done so much for them already. I think it's totally fair that she uses her own money to fix up her eyes. That made me so happy, to be honest. I love the way she delivered that. Um, but she'd already spent 10,000 on Rosie, hadn't she? I feel like it was it was very deserved. Yeah. And in her last few it could be even months, in a, but in her last time uh, on Earth, she, she deserves that. I love she was just like, Sodom. <laughs> I mean, certainly they've, they've, and in, in this episode, we saw how the family is so broken at this point. They all virtually abandon her, except for Celeste, of course. So, like, I think, you know, she, she deserves to have just, she can do what hell she wants at this point. Well, except for how she treated Celeste with that fucking that gong. Was very uh, alarming. Uh, it's uh, Celeste in a kind of housemaid role. I, I hate this on every level. The yes. optics of that from a racial perspective are a bit... <gasps> yes, especially seeing uh, the certain comments uh, Muriel has made in the past about people of other races. Uh, I, I assume that, that that racial undertone was very, very intended. I mean, to stay with Muriel after everything that she's being put through, Celeste is the same, isn't she? Like, Celeste is just so, so kind good. and just, yeah easily my favorite character i love so much that i was so wrong in her at the start and i stand her so hard now fantastic character fantastic performance really hope uh, i hope her ending is strong whether it's happy or bad i just hope yeah this character gets what they deserve in terms of they get good writing in the last episode so full of ambition and verve she's gonna get what she deserves <laughs> i kind of live in hope I kind of live in hope every episode that she's going to slip back into her accent like she did occasionally. And I blasted full, full <laughs> That's man. great. Is it excellent? You'll make a sad mistake. <laughs> on, on that note of, <laughs> on that musical note of music, I liked leaving Rosie's like zone. Uh, really interesting guitar notes that were kind of playing around in the score. And like we said earlier, the Torchwoody um, investigating music I thought was really cool. Sight and Weight pays £500,000 a year for clinical support to Yes Chain. And sitting on the board of Yes Chain is Vivian Rook. Oh, I bet she is. Where you are. I've got to find it. Two doors away. And the new ending music that wasn't marred by a BBC person speaking over the credits was very pleasing. What a nice surprise. I loved when um, when uh, Stephen was about to drop Victor in the concentration camp. I loved the, 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 those creepy-ass strings going massively intense there. Oh, that was very good. That was sort of like a peak gold there in terms of his horror themes. A bit Weeping Angels. Transfer Victor Goriah. The music from the very beginning of Edith's um, Edith's scene with uh, Slight and Weight, um, right the way to the end where um, her breathing's heavy and she's talking to Bethany is excellent. It, it, it plays the whole way through and it goes through so many different uh, peaks. Erstwhile. Oh, 
Rosie and Jonjo are talking uh, just just before it goes through one of those year flash forwards, uh, which had I think a accordion in it. Uh, I thought it was pretty nice, and you don't really hear Murray Gold use uh, that kind of instrument uh, often. It's sort of more uh, orchestral, uh, but I thought it was really nice, a sort of Disney sounding. When I was a kid, 2028 sounded like the future, like we'd all have jetpacks and monorails and taking our food in little pills like astronauts. Here it is. I'm telling you, we're not astronauts. I like that John Joe seemed to turn out to be fine. Like, he seems pretty... He's very accepted in the family and he seems like a nice bloke. There didn't seem to be any problems with him. Although I still think Edith Yeah, I, right I had a feeling John Joe would be fine. But yeah, he seems totally fine, which is a relief. What did you think of the... So, the bedroom law where if you have two or more spare bedrooms, you need to house some homeless in your house. I thought it was one of those things. It reminds me of, you know, those people where it's like you've got to do your part to combat climate change. You've got to drive a different car and you've got to use different bags and you've got to do this and that, which is all like, yeah, but it's kind of offloading the more structural problems onto the individual. Like, I agree that, you know, if a middle class family is spare houses, there are certainly situations where I can see better uses for them, but I, I would have liked some clarity on, are all those, I don't know if England gets this as well, but do you have a bunch of uh, buildings owned by foreigners that are more or less empty? We've got like, empty properties and stuff. We've got loads of those, like London's got a shit ton. And I feel like that's probably still going to be the case in the future as well. Like this whole thing of like, take people in. I think that's absolutely a case of, we can't be fucked to deal with the actual problems. We can't, we can't be bothered housing these people. We can't be bothered yeah. putting them in these empty properties that are just owned by whoever the fuck, like, you know, you take them. I think it's absolutely one of those things. Yeah, I think it sounds vaguely fair on the surface, but without knowledge or are, are all the rich people's mansions filled up? Are all these foreign-owned buildings filled up? Like, I don't think the population is at the kind of level where this is probably necessary. Yeah, I think this is offloading it onto the people. I mean, part of how so much of our political institution has just worked for ages now is this idea of fake necessity and disguising the fact that everything that is being done and that is happening is essentially a political choice. You know, like austerity, you know, the Tories and the Lib Dems kind of that, that was uh, just this. There's this whole kind of mindset that all of these things are crucial and that they must be done. There's nothing else we can do. And it's just a great way of just obscuring the fact that actually yeah, everything is just being done on purpose. And the same is true for this whole situation in years and years. Like it's absolutely this idea of fake necessity. And it's worked its way into Viv's concentration camp speech as well. It all goes back to that end of history delusion where everyone thinks the current state of things is arbitrarily the best state of things or at least the final state of things this is how things are and there is no other way they can be they have to be this way it's totally normal for a system to completely collapse every 10 to 15 years that's just how economics are meant to work and how they will work forever you know it's all all these delusions and even the so-called people cognizant of reality like Danny and Stephen in the first episode they still buy into these same sort of delusions that the status quo is somehow ordained or perfect or at least final it's really easy to forget that 
our civilization is a civilization just like, you know, I don't know, the Romans or uh, the Mayans. It's, and uh, this is kind of a stark reminder that anything can happen. Yep. Speaking of history and things repeating themselves, um, you know, Neo, you've been stressing for a while that um, you expect the series to end on this case of uh, multi-generational living in one house. And I feel this episode maybe preempts that a bit by showing first how the family is incredibly fragmented. So, you know, so just before the finale, they're all they're all broken. They're all over the place. They're all they're leaving Mural alone on their own in the house. And maybe that will then be reversed in the finale. And we'll see them all come back together for the big uh, the big finish, as it were. We love stories. I don't want Stephen there if, if this is going to happen. <laughs> I find it really interesting now how, you know, it was an extended family originally and now it's uh, it's still it's still a maternal household, but it's now a matrilocal household. There's absolutely no men in it at all. And it's, it is intergenerational. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I don't even notice. When I was a kid, 2028 sounded like the future. Even now, 2028 still sounds a bit like the future, even though it's not very far away at all. I think certain like does. numbers have... Yeah, yeah, like certain numbers have just taken on this sort of futuristic gravity, which they'll only lose when we actually get to them and we're like, oh, shit, yeah, it's not the future, it's just the present and it's still crap. Wasn't Blade Runner set in like 2018 or something? It, it, and it still kind of sounds like a futuristic year to me, even though that's in the past. You could sell me Cyberpunk 2019 and I'd sound, ooh, that sounds sci-fi, even though, you know, I'm living in it. I feel like we still haven't quite like faced up to just the fact that Steven has just be completely become a monster now. Like that fight, that shot of when Bethany saw his face over the webcam and his creepy smile when he dropped Victor into the into the folder. Oh my god! I mean, I didn't scream, but I was like, ah! Like that was bloody, that was freaky as fuck. And it's so interesting to make one of the family members like as, pretty much as adjacent to a villain or an antagonist as you can get. I was utterly convinced earlier on that you know he 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 was the banker and then he he was the one who lost the money. Um, and I was sort of convinced that he'd get the redemption arc, like he was part of the problem, but now he's realised his, his, that his ways, he votes Labour now, you know, he, he's trying to make, make changes. But with the cheating and certainly with this, it's, that's definitely not the way it's going, he's definitely the antagonist and I love it. I mean, the bike scene in um, that previous episode, that feels like foreshadowing for this now. I was wondering where, what was that signifying? Where was that going to lead? And I think this idea of Steven just becoming this, this sadist almost is like the logical combination of that. It's the idea that he has nothing himself now. He's, he was, he's always been the, the, the complacent yes man and getting to kind of re relieve himself in these little ways of harming other people, which actually have massive, massive effects like that man with the bike definitely lost his job and possibly lost a lot of other stuff in his life and Victor has now completely lost everything. He's in a concentration camp. It's, it, these, these have massive effects. I'm not even entirely convinced he knows what he's doing, but he certainly gets a rush out of it. That ending of episode three just now is kind of reframed for me. Its purpose seems to make more sense now, given Steven's turn as a villain. That really sets up a lot of his psychology in hindsight, yeah. I hate to watch Stephen relieve himself. I really do. <laughs> also, I love he admits in this. He admits this episode that he doesn't particularly like Elaine. I thought that we got that funny scene last week where she was kind of kicking him out at six a.m., which is kind of setting that up. But it's like he—he—he's just so. I mean, he's the archetype of just fuck my shit up, isn't it? Like he's just completely screwed the pooch. You know, he's just living with this woman, and he's just—it's all—it's all gone to hell, really, hasn't it? Stephen's future is a fucking nightmare. Did you like guys like um, Strax's cameo this week? Dan Starkey showing up to um, take Muriel's house. 
His voice, if not his face, was so recognisable. Oh, I knew. I knew I recognised him. Also, if we're quickly um, running off um, actor appearances, Bethany, um, her actor's going to be in Dracula, isn't she? That's such great news. Um, I, be- I believe, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I did look at... Um, I looked at everyone's acting um, qu- qu- like stuff the other day, so I looked at... Um, uh, Tania Miller's wiki and everything, and I couldn't find anything for Bethany. All I could find was her agency, and on the bio it said um, she'd filmed for years and years, and that now she's filming for Dracula, so that's quite exciting. I was curious if Morph or Katz had any interesting takes on the show in general that, you know, they had yet to share. On the show in general? Yeah, anything you like. Um, I suppose uh, I was sort of talk- talking the other day about how it's, it's quite fixed now, isn't it? It's quite... Um, it's quite a timely show. It's broadcast in 2019 to a 2019 audience. I'm not sure that RTD really worries about how it's going to be perceived in the future. It's about um, it's about getting the, his point across today, showing people, you know, however many people watch it, I haven't looked at the ratings, but showing people that the world is changeable and the, the world that we're living in now isn't perfect and it's not even good by any means. It's and it, it's. Um, it's quite fixed, I think, is, is my point. It's it's never going to change from what it is today. In fact, it's only going to um, lose weight because of uh, its predictions of the near future and stuff. It's, it's not going to seem the same to an audience 10 years down the line as it will today. Anybody who understands it, that is. That's just the irony of science fiction, is authors predict the future but really they're just illustrating the present or at least their conception of it because that's all they can do you can only think in the status quo of the time and everything you write exposes the neuroses of the specific time so yeah i don't think this show will age well but i think it'll age in a way very indicative of the kind of headspace of 2019 which has its own value for sure i completely agree i just think that rtd is aware of this i think that's that's definitely um something he's intentionally doing I don't think he really cares, in fact, how it's actually going to be received in the future. Mm. I don't think he cares that it will go down in history like Doctor Who will or anything else. I think he wants to get his political message across. It's like publishing a blog. When, when he was doing Doctor Who, he was very much writing for the weekly broadcast, not writing for the DVD box set. I think you can really tell in a lot of his episodes, and I totally see, like, look at the season, the series one finale, although I think that has aged well. It's very much writing for 2005, not writing for Doctor Who fans all across the future. So yeah, I, I completely agree with you. He's he, he's aware that he's writing for 2019 and he's totally happy with that because that's what he likes doing, writing timely stuff for the time. It even links to his writer's tale quote about how the series three finale, he just made it up as he went along. He writes very much for the now, like the very instant. And after that point, it barely matters. Like his, his, his TV is an event. You know, you, you see it, it happens, and then, you know, maybe you forget about it, but you were entertained in that instant, and that's what RTD lives for, maybe. And arguably, th- that style sort of works better now than ever before, because of how fast news is, how, how late you can sort of cut things in, like that uh, Theresa May Brexit radio. Yeah. Said in the first episode. So having really current TV writing writing for, for the weekly broadcast is, is not only is it easier, it's also more relevant with how interconnected we all are. I've got one more thing, if, if if that's possible. Okay, just just quickly. I thought it was ironic that even while she was kind of 
even though I, I said earlier it was so cool for RTE to bring up the um, the concentration camps in the Boer War as a way of linking it to what Viv was doing, I thought it was ironic how even in that speech Viv elided the actual purpose of the camps. E- even she was doing that Jacob Rees-Mogg-esque uh, kind of whitewashing of them because you're saying, well, you know, it was just they were refugees or in the camps. Like, no, like, the camps were an instrument of war. Kitchener was doing a scorched earth policy, right, burning farms, slaughtering livestock, and bringing in people specifically as a way of wearing down the resistance right so in in essence like it's just i think it was a kind of an interesting uh kind of parallel to how no okay i'm just i'm just waffling now fuck it but like that was just i thought that was uh it's just interesting to see how on every single level that historical amnesia works its way in